This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Jennifer Bachant of Gilderland. She has worked in a mental health clinic, in a county jail, as a school social worker, and as a research scientist for the state's Office of Mental Health. She now runs a business called Building Better Futures. She combines her expertise from academic degrees with a hands-on approach to help teachers, parents, and businesses navigate challenges. During the pandemic, her focus has shifted to schools, supporting people through stressful times. Bashant raised her own three children, now aged 15, 18, and 20, by taking an individualized approach with each child. I definitely live all the things I talk about, she says. Can you just start by telling us about all those impressive initials after your name? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So I have a a doctorate in social work, and uh, also I'm a licensed um, MSW, Master in Social Work, and then I have a, a master's degree in criminal justice as well. And let's just, before we hear about your current work, kind of walk through your life's journey. Um, how, how did this begin? Where, where did you start? I started my career in the clinical world. So I worked um, in, a, in a mental health clinic. I've worked in a county jail for a little while. Um, I worked in CDPC, and I was also um, a school social worker in Amsterdam for a little bit. And I decided after doing that for some time that I wanted to go back to school and get my doctorate. And um, I was always very interested in academia. So my first job after my doctorate was for the Office of Mental Health as a research scientist. And I helped to evaluate um, programs that the Office of Mental Health was putting out across the state. And through that work, I ended up being the evaluator for um, the Magnet School grant for Albany City, uh, Albany High School. And so I started spending a lot of time in the school and um, meeting with people and talking with people. And I realized that I had a passion for helping to make the connection or build the bridge between the mental health field and education. And I've always been um, very passionate about education. Um, As my kids were also growing up, I was very aware from the parent side of things. um, Some of the issues and struggles with education. So I started moving in that direction and then um, began working for the Capital Area School Development Association, which is part of Albany's School of Education. And through there, I was a faculty member and served as a consultant in many local schools and began really developing my sort of individualist, individualized approach to dealing with challenging behavior in the classroom. And what I learned after being in the trenches with teachers and administrators was that many schools will have clinicians, social workers or psychologists come in and talk about mental health, but they're speaking with their 
mental health lens on or through their mental health lens. And a lot of times the information is useful, but not practical for teachers in the classroom. So what I started to do was take my clinical knowledge and scaffold it and build a bridge so that it made sense and was user-friendly for teachers in the moment while they have 25 kids or more in their classroom that they're trying to manage. Yeah, looking at your website too, you've developed all these lists for people that I would think would be very, very helpful. It's a way of kind of codifying what a problem might be by actually ticking through different sorts of checkpoints. Um, But right now, it seems like you must be in a great deal of demand because with the pandemic, there's so much added stress for teachers, I would imagine. And I did see you had a blog on tips to help educators combat COVID fatigue. And if you could just talk a little about some of the main points in case we have teachers listening or even parents at home dealing with teaching their kids, what what kinds of things are most important for them to hear? Sure. Um, my focus since the pandemic has really shifted a lot to supporting teachers. And over the summer, I anticipated that and did a lot of preparation in terms of looking to the research and best practices in in terms of how to support people through really stressful times. And some of the, some of the bodies of research that I, um, that I took from are uh, positive psychology, which really has to do with mindset and the way that you're Um, viewing things, the way you're interpreting things, the story that you're creating and telling yourself and um, what you're choosing to think about. And then I also pulled a lot from resilience literature and what that says about how to, what, what we can do day in and day out to help ourselves be more resilient through really challenging times. And then I also, um, have been uh, pulling a lot from my experience in being trauma-informed. So that typically had been applied towards students, um, but it applies to all of us because we're all struggling in one way or another through this pandemic. We've all had effects and um, negative effects on our lives. And so whether or not those are traumatic depends on the resources that you have and the supports that you have. So, so my focus has really been to help teachers and parents um, focus on their, the relationships that they have, the connections that they have with people, um, how we can lean on each other and support each other, even though we are socially isolated through the pandemic. Um, what are the other ways that we can really connect with people. And then I, another tip that I share with people has to do with um, trying to be a strengths finder. So rather than being problem focused and worrying about things that are out of our control, really focusing on things that are going well or strengths or positives in a situation. And um, for example, what are some of the ways that um people have grown from the challenges, teachers have grown from the challenges of having to teach remotely 
and also in person at the same time. Um, what, what have you learned? Um, how has your tolerance for fear increased? And really just helping people to shift their focus away from all of the things that are hard and going wrong to how is this helping me to step outside of my comfort zone, to do things I never thought were possible, and to really um, to feel empowered so that in the future, when I'm faced with a challenging situation, I can think back to this and and know that I have the resources to to make it through. Interesting. So you kind of create a mental pathway for yourself that you can then lean on that for support when you need it again. I'd just like to go back and have you unpack some of the things you quickly went over because they're second nature to you, but new to me and maybe some of our listeners. This idea of a positive psychology mindset, the story that you're creating and telling yourself. How, how does that work? We each are kind of, as we go through life, constructing our own narrative about it? Yes. Yeah, so we as humans are storytellers and we respond to stories. And so as you go through your life, you have different events that are happening, could be throughout the course of a day. And what we do is we connect those, we create stories and connect those different points um, so that we can help make sense of our world. And so the story that, that you're constructing about your day or about your life has a lot to do with the emotions that you will feel, the way that your body will respond, and therefore um, the mood that you'll be in and the ex even the experience that you'll have. So a lot of people do this unknowingly. And so the first step is really becoming conscious of the fact that we all do this and that we all also have an inner voice or an inner critic um, that kind of chirps away at us all day long. And unfortunately, much of the time, that inner voice is critical. And it kind of serves the purpose of protecting us. It doesn't really want us to take risks. It wants us to play it safe. And it uses fear to kind of keep us with the status quo. So if you're trying something new or taking a risk, chances are that inner voice will be there saying things like, why are you doing this? You're not qualified to do this. What if you fail and look like a fool? And we all have it. And so that's okay. We just need to really be aware of it. And once you're aware of it, then you have all kinds of power to quiet that voice and redirect it into something that's more positive and more of a cheerleader for yourself. So I think that that is something really powerful that I can help people do because, like I said, many of us don't even know that that's sort of happening beneath the surface. Fascinating. I'm sitting here so I'm hoping our listeners are just working through my own mind and thinking of my own voice. And yes, it's very critical. So what do you do <laughs> to make that voice into a cheerleader? How, how do you... It's, it's a practice. It's, it's not something that would happen automatically, but being aware of it is the first step. And then you don't have to listen to it and you don't have to um, continue with a negative thought. So once you're realizing that you're having a critical thought, you can, um, I've heard, I heard someone explain it this way. You can write a restraining order for that thought and quiet it and say, nope, I'm not going to 
listen to you. I'm not going to believe you. I am going to think this about myself instead. And so after doing that repeatedly, um, you're actually carving a new pathway, a new neural pathway in your brain. And after repeating that enough times, it will happen more naturally. So it's just something that you have to be aware of in practice. And over time, you can actually change the wiring in your brain to be more positive and to, to interpret things more positively and to be more of a cheerleader for yourself and for others. Fascinating. I love the way you weave the science and with your philosophy. So if you could, in a similar way, unpack that second point you made about resilience. What is it we should know, especially in these times when every day we hear about the new deaths and the new infections and we're, you know, in isolated pods? What what can we learn about resilience or how to become resilient? Yes. Yeah, so resilience is a a pretty wide category. Um, it involves a lot of different aspects, but I like to I like to fall back on the research of Dr. Rick Hansen. Um, he wrote two great books on this topic that I um, would highly recommend. Um, one of them is called Resilient, and he wrote that with his son Forrest Hansen. And then he also wrote a book called Hardwiring Happiness, and he talks about these different practices that we can do throughout the day to become more resilient and to rewire our brains to think more positively and to experience more of the positive things. So one of those is to soak in the positive moments that we all have throughout our day, to notice them, and then to just spend a few moments enjoying them. Here's an example. When you wake up in the morning and you open the curtains and it's the sun is just rising and there's bright colors in the sky and it's beautiful. Do you stop and actually notice how beautiful that is and really enjoy that moment for 30 seconds to a minute? Or do you open the curtains, maybe not even notice and move on to the next thing? So all day long, we have opportunities to soak in positive moments. And the more we do that, the more we're re rewiring our brain to be resilient and to be positive. Hmm. So then if you could also walk us through this idea of being trauma informed, what does that mean? I think we have an idea, most of us, of what a trauma is, but what does it mean to be trauma informed? So Basically, being trauma-informed, in terms of a teacher being trauma-informed, um, he or she has an understanding of trauma, and the understanding of trauma is that it's any experience that someone might have that exceeds their ability to cope. So when someone um, has is up against a challenge or has some kind of event that happens to them or life circumstances, um, that are overwhelming to them and they don't have the resources to cope, that's a traumatic situation. So it could be a student that's homeless. It could be someone living in poverty. It could be someone that um, was part of a terrible car accident. It could be trauma from a medical diagnosis. And it could be trauma from um, anxiety that you have and feeling like you don't fit in in a particular school environment. So it's a trauma could really be anything, but it's very individual. So it's understanding that 
And then being trauma-informed also involves understanding how a traumatic experience impacts one's learning and behavior. And so I teach people about how trauma affects the brain. And we actually look at PET scans so that we can see the difference, differences in the ways children's brains develop who um, have experienced trauma versus those who, who haven't. And it's important for teachers to see that physiological impact because when they see the challenging behaviors in the classroom, then they can tie that to, oh, um, this is actually a physical logic, physiological difference in this student. Um, we wanna move away from um, thinking that kids are being manipulative or controlling or trying to escape or avoid things or trying to get attention and really have an understanding of why they've been triggered and what's happening in their bodies when they are triggered. And then there's a whole set of trauma-informed strategies that follow so that when a student is triggered and dysregulated, um, what does the research say teachers can do to help that student calm down and, and get regulated again so that they can be more engaged in their learning? And I know that you've literally written a book on this subject, Building Trauma-Informed Compassionate Classroom. If you could just talk about sort of the heart of the book and um, is it just for educators or is it something that, say, parents could learn from and use what you've written about? Um, The book is written um, with examples um, from the classroom, but it's relevant for parents. I've had a lot of parents um, read it and give really good feedback that it's helpful to them at home as well. Um, The heart of the book is really taking the research that I'm kind of discussing now, and I've created, there are 27 different downloadable worksheets and templates and exercises that teachers or parents can engage in with their child or their student. And it, so it takes the trauma-informed strategies and makes them doable, makes them, it helps um, with the implementation of those practices. So it's very user-friendly. It's very practical, um, easy to read. And I, my intention with it was to serve as almost like a workbook for teachers to apply the knowledge that they had learned about trauma-informed classrooms. Yeah, I know when my kids were in school, which was years ago, <laughs> they were always coming home with stickers. And it just seemed like things that didn't really connect with Maybe it was to reward good behavior as opposed to not, but it looks like your approach is more substantive than that. Um. Yeah, so I I talk a little bit in the book about the difference between uh, extrinsic motivation and what you're talking about with stickers and rewards and points, and then intrinsic motivation, which is a motivation that comes from within the child which is much more powerful if we can get that to be engaged. Um, So extrinsic motivation is okay, but we wanna be able to, we really wanna be balancing that with developing intrinsic motivation as well, because 
that's what's going to sustain, that's what's going to stick with that child um, as they go through time. If we're only using extrinsic rewards, then what happens when they disappear? Uh, the child um, may not exhibit the, the wanted behavior. They may say, well, what am I going to get for it? So we really want to focus on developing both and working on having it come from within um, the child as well. Yeah, that's such an important goal, I would think. And so much of our world is based on the extrinsic rewards um, all through life, that it's something if you could implant at an early age, it seems like it would be really valuable. Have you, with your, you mentioned children, how how many children do you have, your own children? I have three, and my oldest is 20, and then I have a daughter who's 18 who just graduated from Gilderland High School. And then I have a son who's 15, who's in Voorheesville High School. So did you feel like as you were raising your own children and doing this kind of research and work with other people, that it played out in your own family dynamic? You would use, you know, these same principles and did it work well? Absolutely. I I definitely live all of the things that I talk about, and I very much bring my own experience as a parent um, into my, my teaching and my coaching. Um, so I, and the thing that I've learned probably most importantly is that how differently all kids respond to different things. So everybody needs something different. And so the biggest thing I learned for my kids was to take a very individualized approach with, with each child and to spend enough time really getting to know what what motivates this child and what makes them tick and what skills do they need to practice and get better at and which ones are they great at um how do we how do we showcase the things that they're really good at and passionate about and then how do we support them to build those skills where they might struggle a little bit and so it's going to be different with every single child um always never a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, it seems like that's good advice for anyone in life, you know, not to mm-hmm. kind of make us into widgets. And just, I'm our time is running out so fast, there are so many things I wanted to ask, but on your website, you've got so many things that people can download, even if, you know, they haven't hired you to come. If you could just talk a little about your business model and how it works, because I feel like you're giving away your shop almost. I'm looking right now at a trigger inventory, and I can imagine someone with a child who has difficulties, you know, just working through this with that child. There are things like... Um, sensory with loud noises and social being excluded. And I mean, you're giving out so much of what you have to offer. How, how does your business model work? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I very much believe in uh, sharing as much as I can. Um, a lot of what you see on the website that's downloadable are things that I talk about in my trainings with teachers or in my webinars with parents. So I might discuss something in detail and talk about how it can be used. And then I'll say, you can find that on my website and you can download a copy. Uh, because my ultimate goal is uh, to, to help 
really to make life better for everybody, for make it easier for teachers, make it a better experience for, for kids at home and in school. So those tools are ways for people to take what they've learned and really apply them in their own lives. So it's a big part of what I do. Um, I don't want to just go into a school and and talk to the teachers for an hour or two and then leave. I want it to be something that they can implement, something they can use and continue to learn about um, as time goes on. Because I think that all of the all of the things that I'm talking about are game changers for teachers and for kids. Um, a whole a child's whole life trajectory can be turned in an opposite direction with a teacher who really understands and who's empathetic and really gets that child and knows how to respond to them. That's a completely different experience than a kid who's getting in trouble and getting suspended repeatedly. So it's, it's important to me that teachers and parents can implement the things that I'm talking about. So I see this common thread in your life, whether it was a county jail or a classroom. It's just this idea of, of helping people manage their own lives better. What do you see for your own life going forward from here? What, what are your goals or your future? What does that look like? Um, I, my goal for my business is to continue to expand my reach so that I um, can interact and touch more schools. Um, I plan on writing at least a couple more books to kind of help again to help people to implement the things that I think are important for for them to know. And then um, I also see myself um, talking about things like mindset and resilience and doing some keynote um, presentations. I also do some work in businesses and corporations on mindset and emotional intelligence. So continuing to do those things and just getting out there and really trying to be on the front edge of what's needed. I'm always talking to people and really listening to see um, what the needs are and how I can develop content that is relevant and that supports the issues that are happening at any given time. Well, thank you. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Closing thoughts would be just to to comment on um, for anybody that's listening um, on how difficult things are now for everybody and to not be hard on yourself and let yourself feel your feelings. If you're having a hard day or you're feeling unmotivated, um, that's okay because I think all of us are. So don't hold yourself to the same standards or don't compare what you're doing now to what you did a year ago. Um, it's a different time. We're under a lot of demands. And so just be easy on yourself and, and do the best that you can with, with the situation that we're all in. Um, and thank you all for everything that you're doing. 